Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Have I told you how much elephants are like humans? They can be left-handed or gay, and they mourn their dead. Nadine continues. Where'd you get that? Yael asks. By left-handed, I mean a preferred tusk. You know elephants don't have hands, right? Right, Yael says. She sticks her tongue out at her new friend. That's another thing Yael's learned about Nadine. She answers what she wants to answer. Here's what she wants to hear. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Gila Green, author of White Zion, a novel in stories published in 2019. Also, No Entry, a young adult novel about a Canadian teenager who spends a summer in South Africa's Kruger National Park, learning about wildlife preservation, falling in love with a baby elephant, and being confronted with the horrific and illegal killing of elephants. Hi, Gila. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Gili. Thank you so much for having me. So first, let's talk a bit about White Zion, your book of short stories that was released last year. Can you say a little more about how you came to write it, how the stories are related, and how much of it was autobiographical? Right. Okay. Well, I actually wrote White Zion, uh, believe it or not, 15 years ago, or at least the main stories, I would say the first 10 stories, um, while I was doing my master's in creative writing at Bar-Ilan University. So I think for me, what's really special about White Zion is when I was writing White Zion, I didn't know anything at all. I'm not, I don't know how much I know now, but I didn't know anything at all about the business side of writing or publishing. I was just writing. I didn't have all of those advice articles in my head and um, you know, workshops we go to and, and, and mentor advice, etc. I was really just writing for myself. So that, for me, is the most special thing about White Zion, and I think because of that, it will retain that um, status. That was your first book that you wrote then, but it came out later than your other two novels. Yes, it did. They were short stories, right? So I, I, took, I, I slowly started to publish them. I think I started publishing them, I believe, the earliest ones in 2005. In those days, we were really... If we can all remember, we were printing out the stories and putting them in envelopes and going to the post office and adding, um, no. <laughs> uh, we were adding the stamps, you know, to reply it was really the really old fashioned um, way of submitting or maybe the traditional way of submitting, you could say. And so that, that was 2005, 2006, 2007. Over those years, I, I, would, I was publishing more and more of the short stories Because at that time, the advice was, don't even try to publish it as a collection until you've published all the short stories individually. 
So it took a couple of years to publish all the short stories individually. And then, of course, I added some stories along the way. I added some new ones. Um, and then until you find the right publisher um, takes time as well. So it was important to me that I publish with somebody who really loved the piece and really, really appreciated it. And Servina Barva was just the perfect uh, home for White Zion. So it was worth waiting for. And what about my question about how autobiographical are the stories? Ah, how autobiographical are the stories? Yes. Well, ironically, right now, I actually teach autofiction. At the time, I wasn't even aware of the term autofiction. Um, I would say a lot of the um, actual background in terms of um, my, uh, you know, the dates people were born, the locations people were born, most of that is um, true. It is uh, autobiographical, but I was really, I was really going for the emotional truths um, within the family units, and I, I didn't want to be bothered with those pesky facts. That's the whole sort of um, uh, sort of walk we walk between the memoir and fiction is I, I didn't want to be bothered with facts. <laughs> I didn't want to have to stick to them. So therefore I didn't. I certainly did try very hard to keep the setting completely accurate. So if I was talking about the, um, the shuk, the market in Jerusalem, I spent a lot of time looking up what fruits and vegetables would really have been available in Israel in those years at that time, how homes were genuinely heated, um, you know, distances between places, all of that. I did a lot of research um, to stay accurate. The foods, those kind of things are accurate. Um, and the rest I kind of, uh, I exaggerated or played around with to make the, the thematic point that I was trying to make. Interesting. I am so interested to know how you went from writing semi auto. What, what is it called? Auto uh, fiction. Semi auto fiction. Yeah, from doing that to another uh, kind of writing that I hadn't heard about, eco fiction. How did you come to write an eco fiction young adult novel? Um, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's a great question. Basically, what had happened was I had spent years uh, working and expanding on White Zion. Then I wrote a, I would say, companion novel to White Zion called Passport Control, um, where you will, again, the two, two characters I extracted from White Zion, I then put in novel form and um, portrayed them from a completely different angle in Passport Control. They have the same names. They have the same relationship. You see them again. But if you think of a funhouse mirror or, a, you know, something you would see in a park in, in the days when you could go to those places and in different mirrors, everything looks different. So in Passport Control, they look completely different. I had written a third novel um, that we could talk about later if we have time that is also Israel-based. And my first novel, King of the Class, is also Israel-based. Therefore, I had written four Israel-based novels in different forms. One's futuristic, um, no longer quite as into the future as it was when I wrote it then. Some are White Zionist historical, Ottoman Empire, you know, different 
aspects, but nonetheless still all migrated to Israel. So I wanted a new canvas. I wanted to challenge myself. I didn't want to be, I had a writing partner, I still do, who uh, mentioned to me one time that um, a lot of authors are just writing the same book over and over again. But if you really analyze them, it's the same story and they're just looking at it from different angles. And that that terrified me, basically. <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those authors. And for me, I'm a location-driven writer. You probably can pick up on that already. Um, so for me, the location is a character in the novel. So when she said that to me, I realized, okay, well, if I want to make sure that doesn't happen, I need to change the location. And then everything will be entirely different. So I decided to put myself out there and see if I could write a novel that takes place in South Africa, which was um, daunting because I'm not South African. My husband is South African. I've been there a lot, but I'm still not from there. And as we all know, it's an unbelievably different place, um, obviously. So it was daunting, but I decided that I was going to, um, to do it. And, um, when I thought about South Africa, I've read a lot of South African novels. There's a lot of novels that deal with apartheid and post-apartheid. And I felt that the South African authors were doing a great job with that on their own. I didn't feel it was my place as somebody who didn't grow up during apartheid to touch that topic. And I thought, well, you know, what's the first thing that struck me the first time I landed in South Africa way back when it was still under uh, President de Klerk. It was the end of apartheid at that time, early 90s. Um, and it was the wildlife. <laughs> it was the wildlife. It actually was not the political system initially. It was the wildlife coming from Ottawa, where I had seen wild, um, you know, squirrels, raccoons, <laughs> maybe rabbits. <laughs> Suddenly I was seeing elephants and lions and uh, all that, um, all that sort of thing. And I decided that then that that was going to be my novel. So this is the first of an environmental series that you're planning to write focused on elephants specifically. Will the characters in No Entry appear in those future books? And also, will the stories all take place in South Africa? Right. So I have already written the sequel to No Entry. Um, Almost all of the characters, the main characters, um, definitely reappear. Yael and her friends. She's back in Kruger National Park, and she's back um, as a, a Jewish uh, eco-heroine um, out there to save wildlife, and her heart really belongs with the elephants. Um, the publisher, I think I mentioned to you, it was the book was published in Australia, um, very tragically burned down in the Australian wildfires last December. If people can just remember a little before COVID-19, there were mass uh, wildfires in Australia and uh, it un just burnt to the ground completely. It's a, a wildlife publisher. They are themselves, um, they are themselves um, environmentalists and um, they lost everything. So that was, um, uh, tragic, obviously. No entry had just come out three months before, and then around came out in September, and like around beginning of December, I just couldn't get hold of them. And I was going off to the uh, Vancouver Jewish Book Festival. Again, this was right, right, sort of borderline with Corona. The festival was in February, so this was 
it would have been a month later. I'm sure I wouldn't have gone. Um, and I was trying to get hold of them, obviously, because writers need support from their publishers before festivals. And they, they, it was, when I say burnt down, I mean, they, they didn't even have communication with me. They didn't even have internet. Like they lost their homes, everything. So I have written the sequel, but we will, we will have to see um, where that goes. Why is it important that she uh, is a Jewish heroine? Yeah, good question. Um, I feel that Judaism has a lot of environmental aspects that are, for whatever reason, completely overlooked. We have a lot of um, environmental holidays. We have um, Tubishvat, which celebrates trees. We have Sukkot as celebrating um, outside, Shavuot, the harvest. We, we, we really have a lot of nature-oriented holidays and pro-environment holidays. Obviously, we tithe fruits and vegetables. It's just Judaism has a lot, a lot of tie-ins with the environment. And I, I've always wondered why that seems to be so absent. Um in Jewish literature, when Judaism comes up, it's just not something that's usually mentioned. And so I felt that um, that, that was a great pity <laughs> because it has a tremendous depth and richness about the environment and nature, um, just all through the calendar. And so I, I, I thought, okay, well, let's have a Jewish environmental heroine. Okay. Um, the story takes place, as you said, at Kruger National Park. Can you say more about that amazing place? Yes. Uh, so Kruger National Park is larger than the entire state of Israel. So <laughs> it's one little tiny section of South Africa that's actually bigger than, you know, the entire country that I live in. So that should give you some um, idea of its depth and breadth. Um, it's a wildlife, um, completely wildlife safari. Unfortunately, now with COVID-19, you're going to have a lot fewer tourists, which would mean it's going to be a lot more open to poachers. Um, so Corona has been, you know, bad for everyone and really bad for, for elephants and other animals that are high on demand list, um, for poachers. It's uh, if you just want to be completely in nature, um, you know, entirely untouched, um, then that's definitely where you would want to go. Okay. Why did you choose to focus specifically on the trafficking of elephant husks? Um, I like elephants. I just <laughs> I just have a personal affinity for elephants, and I think. That I was when I started researching, I realized how ignorant I was. I actually thought that ivory uh, poaching elephants for their ivory had sort of gone out with like not wearing seat belts and you know smoking. Like I thought that was really something that had already been decided that this isn't something we do, um, and I couldn't have been more wrong. I was completely ignorant. I thought it was this passe issue. And meanwhile, um, the demand for ivory is only uh, skyrocketing um, to the point where there's a very reasonable chance that our grandchildren will only see elephants uh, in zoos. 
and there won't be any at all in the wild. And I had no idea um, of that issue. So I, I just realized how ignorant I was. <laughs> I thought if I'm this ignorant, then maybe a lot of people are, are too. Um, well, can you say more about the kind of poachers who kill them and uh, the elephants and, and explain why is there so much money to be made? What, what are they using? Who's using all this ivory? Well, there's a global demand for ivory, but particularly in um, Asian countries, China, for example, has extremely high demand for ivory. Um, well, there's a few reasons. First of all, the super rich, the uber rich um, will always have a demand for rare products. Uh, take that however you like, but that is just the fact of the matter. So there will always be that demand for exclusivity um, by that segment of the population. There are still certain traditions in Asian cultures that elephant tusks, for example, could um, be some sort of medicine for various ailments, which is all completely false. Um, a lot of Asian countries like China, you know, they block internet and Facebook access. So it could also be a lot of ignorance on the part of people. They don't really think, they think that tests are like teeth and they just grow back or they'll just get other ones. Um, because so much real information is blocked in some of these countries. Um, so that there are various reasons, but I would have to say sadly that, um, the biggest reason is just the demand for exclusive products by um, ultra wealthy people. Really heartbreaking. Let's talk for a second about the uh, the young adult aspect of this, of the book. Why did you choose to make it a young adult story? And is it important to add the element of romance in a young adult story in order for certain population, for that population to enjoy it? So I made it a young adult story. I mean, it's the high end of young adult. Um, Yael Amar is 17. So obviously the young adult is, a, is an age category and it does span, it spans the teenage years. So this is the higher end. Um, I basically made it a young adult novel because it's clear that the adults have failed. We have not protected elephants or rhinos or various other animals, but this happens to focus on um, elephants. Uh, and because we have failed so spectacularly to the point where there are more elephants being uh, poached for their tusks than, than that are being born, um, I figured that it would probably be wisest to aim at the next generation who could hopefully um, do a lot better job, uh, as we clearly have not. Um, that's one thing. Um, sorry, what was your other question? Um is there a need for romance? Ah, um, a lot of agents will tell you that. Certainly the agent I had at the time would say to me that I have to have some romance. Uh, the romance in No Entry is uh, completely kosher. There aren't any, um, there's nothing explicit whatsoever in the book. But I was Although one time, one time he says he'd like to get in the shower with her. That's it. He jokes about it. Uh, correct, because I just think that's re that's realistic for a seventeen-year-old boy. Uh -huh. um, so I think that's that's realistic. But yeah, that's about it. Um, I I wasn't trying to aim the book only at 
animal lovers are only at people who are interested in nature or wildlife. I was trying to aim it at really anyone who's interested in a in an adventure in a new place. So I did want to have more global aspects um, to the books, such as a romance. It also makes it easier mm-hmm. for it makes it easier for a sequel, certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, as a writer, did you feel the need to make uh, for your protagonist to be in mourning? Correct. That's an. It's a. It's actually really good that you picked up on that because it's really subtle. What I was trying to do was um, subtly um, connect human terrorism with animal terrorism, because I think again. Um, it's possible that a lot of people aren't aware that many of the same people who fund human trafficking, human slavery, uh, illegal weapons, those sort of things are the same people who would be trafficking in elephant ivory. And uh, it's actually a little bit gratifying for me to hear that you picked up on that because that was the idea. These are not separate issues. They are often not uh, separate people. They are often the same people and certainly the same types of people, Um, which I think a lot of people don't connect those things necessarily. And I did want to make that, I wanted to make what I feel is an important connection that there's, these people are just destroying the planet for everybody on all kinds of levels, whether it's trafficking in women, trafficking in illegal animals. Bad guys in general. Yeah. So Yael, the protagonist, is shocked to learn how little the park rangers earn. Can you say more about living wages in South Africa? How different is that from the earnings of similar employees in in other places in the world? Well, I'm I'm not an ex- I'm not going to come off as an expert um, on on wages in South Africa because I don't currently live there. But the wages are extremely low, and the unemployment is very very high, um, unbelievably high. So losing your job can often mean not feeding a couple of generations. It's very often grandparents uh, feeding children and grandchildren as well. So the risk to your job there is very high. They also do not, people think of South Africa, possibly, I don't know how other people listen to South Africa, but because it's an English speaking country to a a large extent, obviously there are many African languages, but English is a major language. There are people often might think that it's a Western country in terms of the social safety nets that we have in Western countries, such as pensions, insurance, medical insurance, those kind of things. That does not exist in South Africa, um, unless you are wealthy enough to have been putting into a private pension, which certainly wouldn't include the majority of the black population. So not only are the wages low and the unemployment very, very high, but they also don't have the safety net that a lot of us would take for granted, like welfare, pensions, uh, uh, medical insurance. Um, So it's even more severe than you than a reader from the West might think. I thought you handled it in a very sensitive way and also in a way that anybody of any age reading it could get it, could understand it without really going into the details. I forgot to ask one question about elephants. Um, There's a scene in which 
her uh, friend Nadine tells Yael that elephants can be left-handed or gay. Mm-hmm. Correct. Which was a pretty funny scene. Can you <laughs> say more about that? Um, I was trying to put in uh, various facts about elephants to, I don't want to say to humanize them, but but just to make people feel closer closer to them because of the fact coming, like myself coming from Ottawa, from Canada, you know, an elephant might as well have been a unicorn for as real as it was to me. So I was trying to um, make them real the way we feel dogs are real and cats are real to people. And that, that's why I threw in those kind of things. Ah, well, well done. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> it was a, just a charming, a really charming book. So what are you working on now? Um, I'm always working on a few things at the time. I'm actually, I just finished a final version of a new young adult novel I have called A Prayer Apart, which is one of the four that I mentioned that were Israel-based. And this novel has a male protagonist, actually, um, a 17-year-old male protagonist, and it takes place uh, in 2014 against the backdrop of the war between Israel and Hamas, um, and it kicks off with the the real life occurrence of the kidnapping of the three boys at the bus stop. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That eventually uh, triggered a war with Hamas. So it spans the war basically it starts from the beginning. It's pretty much that two three month period um, where I was myself uh, writing it uh, from my own converted bomb shelter and writing that story at the same time. So I've uh, finished the final revision on that. And I'm, I'm now back to uh, Canada and I've started a new uh, Ottawa based novel where possibly because of Corona, I'm not sure, but I've gone all the way back. That was in 2014. Now I've gone all the way back to 1980. So I like to jump around. Also, since none of us are going anywhere, the only way we can see the world is through books. So thank you. And thank you for talking to me today. It was so lovely getting to know you, Gila. Best of luck on all your writing and on all your books. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series, and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Gila Green, author of White Zion, a novel in stories, and No Entry, a young adult eco-fiction novel. Hope all of you listeners are able to lose yourself in a good book today, and tomorrow too. Happy reading.